I was thinking over lunch about how to <clears throat> um, summarize or capture the essence of what went on this morning. Um, there were certain key ideas I wanted to get across. Um, and I think for the most part they've gotten across, but some may have been miscommunicated a bit based on some feedback I've gotten. Um, you can get, look at the glasses either about one-third full or two-thirds empty. Forecasting tournaments are in their infancy as a scientific method and as a tool for improving policy debate. Uh, we've gone through the first generation of tournaments and we've made certain we've made tangible progress. We've learned how to keep score. We've shown that it's possible to measure the uh, accuracy of probabilistic judgments of messy real world events. We've shown that it's possible to improve the accuracy through a combination of selecting the right people, training them, teaming them, and using the right types of aggregation algorithms. So those are all achievements, I think. And they're, um, but the, we're still far short of what I'm going to call the Bob Axelrod ideal of um, a mechanism that can guide policy with, 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 with evidence-based precision. I, 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 I don't know if that's a fair characterization of where you would want us to be, but I think we're at least two-thirds short of that. Um, but we have made some progress, and I think we're on the right path. So toward the end of this morning, the, the, this morning we, we, we talked about what second-generation forecasting tournaments might look like and how the focus might shift uh, uh, we're still, of course, concerned with accuracy, but we're also going to be concerned with the probative value of the questions that we're posing about the world. And how can we learn to pose questions that have the potential to tip important policy debates one direction or another? And that's tricky because forecasting tournament questions have to be rigorously resolvable, which means they have to be sort of micro. Uh, but we, still, we want them to address big macro questions. So we, I propose clustering as a methodology for, for doing that. And I think there is some evidence that clustering will indeed work. Um, but there um, are lots of additional things that uh, should be said about forecasting tournaments. Um, one issue, um, well, let me take up a few things that have mentioned to me in passing. What, one is the question of um, what's the most important takeaway to give someone who wants to become a better forecaster? And one answer is, well, the, 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 the Ten Commandments in, in the Super Forecasting book do itemize the best, uh, what, what I see as the, as, the, as the best practices of the best forecasters in the tournament. So if you wanted that in a nutshell, that would be it. But I think there's a deeper issue here. Um, and the philosopher Michael Polanyi raised it um, when, he, when he talked about the challenge of teaching people how to ride a bicycle. And he noted uh, that the absurdity of trying to teach people how to ride a bicycle by giving them a tutorial in Newtonian mechanics um, about uh, mass, force, acceleration, angles, um, that just wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it would be utter, utterly fruitless. Um, you need to ride, learn how to ride a bike, you need to get on a bike and start riding it. Uh, and there's some truth to that in the forecasting tournament realm. To learn how to make more granular probabilistic judgments of things you care about, you need to get into the tournament and start making probabilistic judgments of things you care about. Uh, that is the most direct way of doing it. And um, I'm not saying that abstract tutorials are useless, because I've already uh, shown you that the, the, the training module we used that took about an hour did produce about a 10% improvement. Uh, but 
I don't think that's the dominant long-term driver of performance. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's very useful to have some important, some, there are some abstract concepts that can help you extract the right lessons from experience more rapidly, but you have to have the experience. That would be the, the first thing I want to say. Another issue that people raise is quite interesting has to do with the limits on predictability. And um, uh, Danny Kahneman over lunch uh, brought up um, Percy Diaconis, a statistician and, and magician at Stanford who has the seven shuffle rule. Um, how long does it take for a, a perfectly organized deck of cards to become perfectly disorganized so there's no information in it? It takes about seven shuffles. Well, how long does it take before there is no longer any reliable signal about the future? Uh, for example, we, we, we showed the receiver operating characteristic curve that suggested that the super forecasters were able to see about as accurately a 400 days out as regulars were about 80 days out. Um, but seeing much further than that, we, we didn't ask that in the ARPA tournament, but, but I know from earlier tournaments in which we asked questions about five years into the future, that is very hard for anyone to do appreciably better than the dart-throwing chimpanzee. And, and when, when they do better than that, they don't do better than simple extrapolation algorithms. So it's very difficult. Um, so there are limits on predictability. Uh, what we've shown in the IARPA tournament is the temporal domain within which it seems possible to cultivate and train and select people who can make a difference. Uh, but you should expect as you go further and further out into time, there's going to be some degradation. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't still look for early warning indicators of scenarios, but they're going to have to be rolling early warning indicators. You're going to have to be continually updated from year to year. Um, I still think that's a good way to go, but it, 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 I think we do have to come to, to existential terms with the limits of our, um, of our foresight. There was one other thing that Danny mentioned over lunch that I thought was wonderful. It was one of my favorite uh, studies in psychology. Uh, he was remembering a fire hydrant version of it. I was remembering a Dalmatian dog version of it. Um, if Bruner and Potter, um, it, it, it's a study in which, uh, and, and the former director of the CIA felt it was a direct par parallel to uh, CIA an analysts in East Germany, uh, their judgments. Uh, so the, the idea is that you, you, you show people uh, an, an ambiguous stimulus that gradually takes on more and more information. Uh, so if it were a Dalmatian dog, you'd see little splotches, and then finally it would coalesce into a dog. Now, some people start from the beginning. There's hardly, there's hardly anything there, and it gradually builds up. Other people start in the middle. They've already, it's already built up halfway, right? like eight, eight steps into a 15-step sequence. Uh, which group is going to be faster at recognizing the shape of the dog? Would it, would it be the people who started at time zero and, and saw the, the, the patches gradually build up from there? Or would it be people who start, uh, started at time eight, or step eight who, would, who, who there's, there are already quite a few, uh, there's, there's, a, there's, some, there's some degree of pattern already there. And the answer to that question is you're better off having, less, having had less exposure to information because you've created a lot of misleading stories about what's going on early on. It's just too early to figure out. So you get locked into kind of explanatory lock-in or story lock-in and it's a, it, it can degrade, your, your accuracy is degraded. Experience actually is worse. Uh, and John McLaughlin made the, made, made the observation that when he, he, he was, um, I guess he was deputy director of CIA at the time, he, uh, he, the analysts who were quickest to recognize that East Germany was disintegrating were the people who were new to the case. The, 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 the old veterans were the slowest. Uh, and, I, 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 and he said that there were many other examples he could think of in, 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 inside the agency that, that took that form. But I, I think there's a good deal of psychological truth to that uh, idea. <clears throat> Familiarity breeds blindness. Well, 
Well, you talked a little bit about the uh, National Intelligence Council and the mandate they have, or the order they have. They're, they're supposed to, um, every 15 to 20 years, do these uh, out, uh, projections. So the Global Trends 2030 is, I believe, the most recent one. I'm going to talk a little bit about what is in Global Trends 2030 and um, the efforts they make to anticipate the unanticipatable, uh, namely black swans. And I guess. The term black swan is an interesting one. It, it causes a certain amount of semantic conceptual confusion. Uh, really, what you have are swans of varying degrees of grayness. Um, and when you look at the black swans that they generate, um, I guess this is going to be on slide uh, 66. <laughs> it, it's a usual suspect list. Um, it's, I mean, I think. We are sitting around this room, we would probably generate something very similar to this. Uh, what are the black swans? Pandemics, climate change, European Union collapse, China collapse, uh, reformed Iran, nuclear terrorism, cyber attacks, solar storms. They're pretty familiar black swans. They're, gray, they're grayish swans. Now, the, the black swan game actually does require you to do something that is, is almost the opposite of what our super forecasters try to do in the tournaments. That is, you don't care about your false positive rate anymore. You just, you just throw it away. And you, you, just, you just take it to town. So what kinds of things would a, would a real black swan generator generate? Uh, well, uh, I, have, I, have a, I have a little list here on uh, slide 68 of things that I think are more, black, more genuinely black swanish. Um, but they're so black swanish, you're just, they're just going to make you laugh. Um, it, it, a conclusive demonstration of parallel universes, um, leaps in gene splicing technology, eugenics on steroids, average IQ of children in China is 2050. Average IQ in China, of children in 2050 is 180, at least in China, um, because the Chinese don't have our um, uh, ethical reservations about um, the, this, this particular type of technology. Um, the um, Leaps in anti-aging treatments, uh, upper bound closer to 200. Uh, new, new game theoretic means of adjudicating disputes. Uh, discovery of another advanced civilization in the Milky Way. ICBMs become obsolete. New Ice Age. Um, anyway, they're the things that strike us pretty much as preposterous. Um, and when you look at the, the efforts to generate black swans going back before the term black swan had even been coined, I mean, the Rand Corporation has been doing this for many decades. Um, and you look at their reports from the 1960s, we bring together the best and the brightest to anticipate uh, what's going to happen, you, 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 you find that you know, they predicted things like an accidental U.S.-Soviet nuclear war, uh, a Maoist invasion of Southeast Asia, um, a, a cure, single cure, a cure for cancer, um, permanent lunar bases um, all by now, um, but they missed things like uh, the rise of China, uh, the collapse of the USSR, Islamofascism, Hubble, uh, the Large Hadron Collider, the internet, nanotechnology. They missed <laughs> a lot of stuff. Uh, and the things that people in the 1960s would probably regard as almost as bizarre in some cases as the things, some, some of the things I just, I, I just listed. Um, now, obviously, uh, when you're talking about events that have probabilities at 0.000001 or, or lower, um, it's very hard to measure how well calibrated people are, or how discriminating they are in their probability judgments. Um, uh, 
So what can you do uh, with, 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 with black swans? Uh, I mean, Nassim argues, goes toward the anti-fragilization uh, solution. Are, are, there, are there things you can do within a probabilistic, accurate, a probabilistic accuracy framework uh, to, uh, to cope? And I, I think there are things, you're, we, we, we have both a moral and intellectual obligation at least to explore. Um, I think we should think about early warning indicators of whether we're on scenario trajectories toward particular classes of black swanish uh, uh, events. Um, and I think we could also uh, think about um, um, coherence indicators. So there's an interesting body of work. We, even though we can't assess the accuracy of people's judgments of extreme low probability events, we can at least assess how coherently they're assessing low probability events. And we'll, let's just stipulate that coherence is a necessary but not sufficient condition for accuracy. Why is it necessary? Why is it necessary? Uh, well, for, for example, uh, if I were to ask you, how likely is it in the next week that you are going to be paralyzed in a car accident, and I asked you how likely in the next year, and the probabilities were the same, uh, that would be a, a suggestion that your, prob your, your judgments are... Well, it suggests that they're not optimal. Yes. I agree with that. Yeah. It's well, not would, necessary. Well, I would suggest it still be pretty good. I would suggest that what you would want from forecasters, even though you can't assess the directly assess the accuracy of people coping with black swanish events, you do at least want them to become more coherent. Define coherent for this conversation. Um, well, uh, the likelihood of a subset should not be greater than the likelihood of the set from which the subset has been derived. Consistent with the basic axioms of probability theory. The question is whether you force, if you force people to really dramatically nudge them in the direction of coherence, whether they'll get better. If the yes. assumption is that they will. Well, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's a reasonable thing to try. Um, at any rate, I, I, I don't think there is a magic bullet solution for this, but I would, I would say that we shouldn't think of it as a continuum, varying degrees of um, and I think insofar as we're able to, through skillful question cluster generation, create early warning indicators of certain categories of black swanish uh, events, uh, outcomes, uh, that's, I think that's a useful thing to do. Uh, and I think the precautionary principle is problematic because it renders us just too vulnerable to worst case scenario imaginings. One thing I think it's important to say about the things that are um, seemingly impossible, like really black swans, is that there are so many of them out there. Mm -hmm. So that you know, there's the things that you deem probable, things you deem sort of possible, and scenarios often have, always have to stay within plausibility. Reality has no such restraint, and so in the reality spectrum. Well, there's no end of things there from here. Clearly impossible. Mm -hmm. But there are so many of them that statistically, ones that we can't even name are going to be part of what happens in this century, for example. Yeah. And um, I think that's one of the reasons the long-term forecasting uh, has problems because the other story about black swans is that 
one, they're totally unexpected, and two, they're really, really mm -hmm. consequential. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just for the record, I want to point out, I grew up in Australia, all swans are black. One final thing before we move from um, uh, forecasting uh, and, and, and thinking about fut possible futures to thinking about possible pasts and historical counterfactuals. Um, is a thing that of, of very substantial interest to IARPA, that a, a program I think they're going to initiate fairly soon in some form, is going to be a competition involving humans and machines and hybrids. Uh, in chess, they call them centaurs, in which hu humans and uh, um, uh, advanced chess programs play together against other humans or uh, advanced. At any rate, um, IARPA does have a deep interest in this, and, and psychologists, going all the way back um, to 1954 and a book that Paul Meal wrote about statistical versus um, uh, clinical prediction, uh, have had an interest in this. Um, a dominant view in psychology um, for, for a number of decades, um, it may still be the dominant view actually, um, is that um, when you can construct a uh, a um, statistical model of a phenomenon that captures the, um, excuse me, when, when, you, when you can construct a statistical model that mimics the Q utilization policy of the human judge, the statistical model uh, will perform as well as or better than the human judge virtually always. So the model of the person either ties the person or outperforms the person, um, which is sort of interesting. Um, and in fact, one of the strictures that emerge from that literature is when you have a human being who has a model, don't let the human being play with the model, tweak, tweak it, because the human being will simply make it worse. Uh, now, not all meteorologists and macroeconomists agree with that. Uh, there have been various efforts in the last decade plus um, to demonstrate that there are conditions under which well-informed experts can, can actually piggyback on models and do better with models. And IARPA is particularly interested in this. So they, they, they don't like the pessimistic Paul Meal view. Uh, they, they're looking for, um, for ways in which humans and machines can be more than the sum of their parts. Um, yeah? I just want to get, come back to the black swan for a minute. Um, the black swan events here mostly are science and technology, the you know, suggested ones. Yeah. Largely, maybe that's because we don't expect human behavior to fundamentally switch in some way, so it has to be some other. The radical embrace of forecasting tournaments, for example. We do politics with forecasting tournaments. That would be a black swan event. So I'm, I'm just running open loop here. Um, how, uh, you know, we look back over the last 150 years, quantum mechanics was a black swan. No one expected quantum mechanics. Fission. Uh, as a technology was a black swan. Uh, dark matter is a black swan, unexpected. How often the how often the black swans happen in physics? Have, has it been constant over history? Is it a, a function of how many scientists there are? Uh, can we have a meta theory of black swans that was going to be more physics or less physics black swans? Because um, that that you know when we we're worrying about certain things in society. If, if it's if there's a high probability there's going to be something completely changing, you know, 
Well, that comes back to the discussion we were having about Moore's law, whether it's a law or not, but that you know something come happens that a whole bunch of people get on the bandwagon about that came out of wherever it came out of, and suddenly there's a huge shift in behavior that you couldn't have easily predicted before because you don't know this act is going to happen. And we see that in politics. So, you know, we see the Reagan-Thatcher revolution changes mindsets. And that's not, things like that's that. not quite like dark matter or quantum No, 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 no. <laughs> but they're not like swans in the same way, but they still are these huge shifts. Same-sex marriage would yeah. have been in 1980. Yeah. 90s, actually. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, there are a bunch of them once you start same thinking that way. Yeah. Same-sex yeah, see, that's a good same sex marriage actually is an amazingly fast transformation yeah. by, by, by sociological standards, I think. Um, but so is the Thatcher Revolution. Yes. Yeah. Just a switch, almost on a dime. But less dramatic, I think, than same sex, because there, there always had been free market conservatives. Same sex marriage was a, an yeah. extension of civil liberties to a domain it hadn't been extended to before. But the point is not about the particular ones, yeah. but really about the phenomenon of these things that come in and change the way people yeah. think. But if I were to come along and say... And there's a continuum of them. If I'd inserted into my black swan list there, and not just parallel universe stuff, but I also had inserted something like um, The End of Religion by 2100. 20, mm -hmm. um, I mean, Karl Marx didn't come came fairly close to saying something like that in the 19th century. Um, and a number he did say something. A number of uh, uh, other social scientists have expressed similar sentiments. Uh, the end of ideology, the end of religion. Um, uh, forecasting tournaments are, in some sense, a quite idealistic effort to reduce the influence of ideology and make people more evidence-oriented. Um, but, but I think it's a really good point that it's very difficult for us human beings to conceive of black swans that involve mutations of human nature. Mm. Although in all of those cases, I think it may um, be mistaken to think of them as sort of like a instantaneous pivot. So uh, civil rights movement or gay marriage or any of these things are, are built on a real foundation. It's almost as if you have all of these constituent precursors that enable one switch to flip, and it, it looks like it happened in an instant. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. So, so, I mean, you could, you could predict black swans by asking what things are, all, what, what chess pieces are already arrayed in such a way that a single event could yeah. have a massive impact. Yeah. And quantum mechanics has that because I mean, people were building up to that. Anyway, so I, I wanted to leave you with the impression that I am optimistic about the potential utility of forecasting tournaments to improve how we conduct high-stakes policy debates. Because as we move into this next part of the uh, presentations, uh, counterfactual history, the imaginary control conditions and policy debates, uh, things are going to take a somewhat dark turn. <laughs> it doesn't mean that things are hopeless, but it does mean that there are some there are some really deep difficulties here uh, that we need to, to wrestle with. So page 72, uh, slide 72, right? Uh, so the picture of two people uh, on slide 72, uh, one of whom is one of the most famous historians of the 20th century, E.H. Carr, and the other of whom is a famous economic historian at the University of Chicago, Robert Fogel. Um, they could not have more different attitudes toward the importance of counterfactuals in history. 
for E.H. Carr, counterfactuals were a pestilence. Uh, they were a silly parlor, a frivolous parlor game, a methodological rat hole, a uh, sore loser history. It just it wasn't, it was, it was not a very fruitful way for you to waste, it was, it was a waste of cognitive effort, essentially, to think about counterfactuals. You should think about history the way it did unfold and figure out why it had to unfold the way it did. Uh, almost almost a, a, a prescription for, um, for hindsight bias. Um, and uh, for Robert Fogel, on the other hand, he uh, approached it more like a scientist, and he quite correctly recognized that if you want to draw causal inferences from any historical sequence, you have to make assumptions about what would have happened if the hypothesized cause had taken on a different value. And that's, in other words, a counterfactual. Um, so um, you have this interesting tension, but many, many historians do, I think, still agree in some form with E.H. Carr. Uh, virtually all economic historians, I think, would agree with Robert Fogel, who's you know, one of the, the pivotal people in economic history, won a Nobel Prize and all that. Um, but there's this very interesting tension between people who are more open or less open to thinking about counterfactuals. And, and, and why that is so is something that I think is uh, worth, worth exploring. Um, now, just what do I mean in the context of when I did my early work on uh, expert political judgment, one of the things I did is I did look at experts' uh, judgments of historical counterfactuals, or possible pasts as well as possible futures. And it turns out judgments of possible pasts and possible futures are linked in interesting ways to each other. Um, so you could ask a question of experts uh, back in what they did in the early 90s about Reagan. And if, if, if Ronald Reagan hadn't been president of the United States in the 1980s, would the Soviet Union exist in the 1990s? Now, if you happen to be uh, a conservative, uh, the answer to that question is pretty obvious. Um, probably so. And if you happen to be a liberal, the answer to that question is pretty obvious. <laughs> probably not. Uh, if anything, they think Reagan slowed down the, 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 the transformation. Um, now, these kinds of counterfactual disputes come up all the time in economic policy debates, foreign policy debates, virtually any, 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 any policy debate has some kind of counterfactual uh, dimension to it. Um, beliefs about the Reagan counterfactual were so correlated with political ideology in that study that they were statistically interchangeable with ideology. They, 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 help, they belonged as much in an ideology scale as any other item in an ideology scale. Um, and it, an interesting thing about counterfactuals and ideology is they don't typically feel imaginary. When, when people say things like, well, if I think if Reagan hadn't been president, we still have the Soviet Union, if someone says something like that, they, 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 they feel it's a factual assertion, not a counterfactual assertion. It's as though, um, it's, it's, it's very interesting the way imaginary worlds uh, take on a quite tangible meaning in, in, much, in much political discourse. Um, now, there are, here again, I've been influenced by, 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 by Danny's work on, on counterfactuals and close call counterfactuals. There are two different aspects of counterfactual reasoning that's important to distinguish. Um, liberals and conservatives don't disagree over whether Ronald Reagan was almost assassinated in 1981. That's a close call counterfactual. It's not something that provokes a lot of disagreement. They don't disagree over whether Hitler could have easily perished in the trenches of World War, uh, World War I. They, they, there are lots of things they don't disagree about um, on the antecedent side. 
of counterfactuals. Those are all things that are readily imaginably different. The, the other world feels close, close at hand. Uh, where they do disagree is where they go from the an imaginary antecedent, right, uh, Reagan, Reagan not being the president of the United States, to the consequence, uh, the, 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 um, whether the Soviet Union exists or not. Uh, that's the, the causal link. Ideology infuses the causal linkage between antecedent and consequent. Um, and because counterfactuals are counterfactual and nobody can visit these alternative worlds and check out whether or not there was a Soviet Union in the world in which Reagan wasn't president, uh, there's a great deal of potential for ideological mischief. Right? We, it, it's as if you're running experiments and you always get to invent the data in the control group. How fast would science advance under those conditions? I think it would slow things down. So counterfactuals, problematic in, in, in many ways. Um, let say one more thing about counterfactuals. We've had, we were talking a lot earlier this morning about uh, mental models and explanations. Counterfactual, exploring counterfactual beliefs is a wonderful way to tease out the mental model that's underlying your view of reality. Uh, so for example, if I were to say to you, if Hitler had died uh, in World War I, uh, World War II would never have occurred. There never would have been a Nazi regime, there never would have been a Holocaust, there never would have been World War II. Or if, if I said to you, uh, if, if the Archduke uh, hadn't been killed in Sarajevo in June of 1914, then no World War I, and then no Bolshevik regime, and then no Nazis, and no, it's totally different 20th century. Uh, if, I, when I, if I say things like that to you, um, some people are inclined to allow me to go off on this flight of counterfactual fancy and let history diverge ever further from the actual world. Um, we, we, there's something called deviation amplifying second order counterfactuals as you go further and further away from reality. And other people are inclined to bring history back on track. They're inclined to say, well, if Hitler had died, some other right wing guy would have, would have taken over. He might have been equally nasty and we would have had events very similar in, uh, to World War II. Or, we, you know, World War I, it was multipolar, an unstable European system. It was, it was bound to be a conflagration at some point or another. Uh, those are counterfactuals that bring history back on track. Um, so whether you, what kinds of counterfactuals you prefer, whether you prefer counterfactuals that let history stray really far away from the observed world, or uh, um, only let history temporarily go off the track, you know, no, almost everybody lets history temporarily go off the track because we know, we have this deep intuition that things are mutable at the level of human beings and we know that you know, these human beings are quite fallible and they know their little accidents are certainly possible. Um, but we, we, the, the, the tendency for people, uh, for uh, um, uh, the believers in um, <clears throat> deviation attenuating counterfactuals is to, is to restore history. Um, and I think that does tell us something quite interesting about uh, not only ideology, but about the, the causal frameworks that are guiding their reasoning. Um.